How many of you would rather live under the blessing of God than the curse of God? Raise your hand if you'd rather live under the blessing. Okay. But I want you to know that when I ask you, how many of you would rather live under the blessing of God than the curse of God? And when you raise your hand, when you raise your hand, you're saying, I want to, I want to live under the blessing of God. That's why it's critical that you understand these beatitudes. Because God is telling you, if you want to be blessed, if you want to live under the blessing of God, then you need to live according to this way. Hello and welcome as we lift up Jesus with Pastor Dudley Rutherford. I'm Kyle Welch. This program is part of an outreach ministry from Shepherd Church located in Los Angeles, California. Everything we do at Shepherd is based around John 3.14 that teaches us to lift up the name of Jesus that the world might believe. We want to come alongside you in your journey with God and help you become stronger in your faith so you can better serve Jesus and share him with others. Our pastor is Dudley Rutherford. And we join him right now with his message for us today. I want to, as we start, if you're here and you are a hosting a life group, uh, this, this particular series, I want you to stand and remain standing if you're hosting a life group. I want you to stand up real quick. Okay. Now remain standing, remain standing. These are the, these are the brave souls who have invited uh, the church to come into their homes and uh, they're going to play a DVD uh, that the staff has put together and then go through a list of questions and you have an example of that. And every week it will coincide with what we do here in church. And what I want to do is I want to pray for you who are standing, okay? I want to pray for our life group leaders and uh, because it's a big thing for them to be willing to do this, Amen. And so uh, I just want to ask God's blessing upon you in your home. Is that cool? All right, let's pray. God, thank you uh, for this brand new series on the Beatitudes. I I really don't think people understand how rich uh, this series is going to be. Uh, For the next two months, the things that we're going to learn that have the power to transform our life and transform this city. I pray, Father that you would be with those who are standing, the life group host, the life group leaders. God, I want to thank you for people like them who, without any credit or fanfare, they're willing to open up their home and invite people in week after week after week. It's not an easy thing as far as, you know, you've got to have your house clean and, and uh, you know, make sure the uh, DVD works and to keep track of everybody. But, Lord, I, I pray your blessing upon them. Uh, for that commitment and for that uh, decision. I pray that this series uh, that would just be a blessing to them and to those who attend, to those who get involved. And I pray that through, through our life groups that this church really drills down deep into these, uh, into these eight Beatitudes. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for a chance to look into your word and to, and to become better people. God, we thank you. And we ask your blessing on the message and the sermon, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. And uh, let's give all them a hand as they're seated there. If you have your Bibles, if you look at Matthew 5, uh, chapter 6 and chapter 7, it's what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. Really the first 
and the longest recorded sermon by Jesus in the, uh, in the Bible. So it's very important uh, for us. It's 109 verses long. I want to give you a little bit of background today, and as we go through week by week, we'll continue to give you more background uh, to that time period so you can better understand uh, these Beatitudes. But write this down. This is the beginning of a new day. The Old Testament is ending. You're in this transitional period where the Old Testament is ending and the New Testament is beginning. That's very important for you because you live in the New Testament. You live in the new era, the new dispensation. The Old Testament was centered on the law and the laws of God, the rules and the regulations. And the New Testament, praise God, is focused or centered on grace. Can you say amen to that? Amen. The Old Testament is thunder and lightning and judgment. The New Testament is love and kindness and mercy. I want you to write this down. The Old Testament really, in in essence, was a curse. And the New Testament, which you will discover, is going to be a blessing. You see, for hundreds of years, thousands of years, I should say, God's people lived with the burden of the law. And all you need to do is to read the book of Leviticus, the book of Exodus, and the book of Deuteronomy, and you'll discover there are not just 10 commandments, there are 613 commandments. They're difficult to even read. That's why many of you, when you read through the Bible, you quit in the middle of all that because it's just so, uh, it's, it's just difficult to read, let alone to understand. It's hard, it's hard to read, let alone to understand it. And it's impossible to obey them. And so the Sermon on the Mount, what we're, you're going to see is this size, it's a seismic shift for God's people. Jesus ushers in a new kingdom. And these are the guidelines, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, are the rules or the guidelines for the new kingdom or the new way of life. Now, it's very interesting that the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the the rules and the laws, it all began when Moses went up on a mountain. And he goes up there and the mountain is covered with a cloud because no man can come near to God. Okay? And then he comes down off that mountain and his face is all glowing. And what does he have with him etched in stone? He's got the commandments of God. And these are the rules for the, for the Old Testament and for the Old Covenant. It's the rules and the guidelines. He comes down off that mountain and he gives them to the people. And as he comes down, they're already sinning uh, before he can even give them to them. And Jesus, in similar fashion, if you think about this, now we're at the start of the New Testament. How does it begin? It begins with Jesus going up on a mountain, except this mountain is different. It's not covered in clouds where you can't get there. It's God. Jesus himself is God's son. It's God in flesh. And now God, you see, is becoming accessible to man. And if you look at uh, Matthew chapter 5, and as Jesus, again, it it says that he goes up on the mountain. He saw the crowds. He went up on a mountainside. And what did he do when he went on the mountain? He sat down. This was different than Moses going up and in, in hiding and coming down with the commandments. Now Jesus is sitting down. His disciples come up to him and he begins to teach them. And he actually says, and this is what this is, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he's delivering the new laws, the new guidelines for the new kingdom. Do you see, you see the similarities? So in his first recorded sermon, the first word 
If you look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, what's the very first word of his sermon? It's the word blessed. And what does he say? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, the word blessed, you need to understand that word. It's the Greek word makarios. The word blessed is the word that means happy. And it's in there nine times. Happy, 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 happy. I want you to turn to whoever you're sitting next to. You're going to have to use your fingers. You've got to use your fingers. Not eight, not ten, nine. Just like Jesus. I want you to say happy to whoever you're sitting next to. Okay, happy, happy. Say it. Come on, whoever you're sitting next to. These are happy days. It's very interesting that the last word of the Old Testament is curse. And the first word of Jesus' first sermon that's recorded is the word blessed or happy. I want to ask you a question. Don't raise your hand unless you really mean it. How many of you would rather live under the blessing of God than the curse of God? Raise your hand if you'd rather live under the blessing. Okay. Now, I, I hope you raised your hand there. But I want you to know that when I ask you how many of you would rather live under the blessing of God than the curse of God, and when you raise your hand, when you raise your hand, you're saying, I want to, I want to live under the blessing of God. That's why it's critical that you understand these beatitudes. Because God is telling you, if you want to be blessed, if you want to live under the blessing of God, then you need to live according to this way. And so I hope and pray that you will pay extreme attention to these words. The problem is that we who live in the United States, we do not understand what true happiness is about. We equate happiness with fame and fortune and pleasure and outward circumstances. But the blessed, the happy that is mentioned here in Matthew 5 has nothing to do with outward circumstances. And so that's why it's even difficult for you to understand the Beatitudes. You read through them, oh, they seem kind of simple. Yes, but we don't really understand because our viewpoint of what happiness is is different than what Jesus' viewpoint of happiness is. And so my, my goal over these next two months is to show you what God's view of being blessed and being happy is all about. The world says happiness is being number one, being financially independent, having a three-car garage, it's winning a Grammy or winning an Oscar. Jesus is saying, you don't have a clue to what true happiness is about. Let me tell you what being happy is all about, and this is completely contrary to what the world thinks of happiness. I want you to just look in your Bibles at Matthew 5, starting with verse 3, what true happiness is all about. Verse 3, poor in spirit. Well, we don't even know what that means. Verse 4, true happiness belongs to those who mourn. What are you talking about? If you said, hey, would you like to be happy? Yes, Jesus says you've got to mourn. <laughs> well, people would laugh at you if you said that. Verse 5, blessed are the meek. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Verse 7, the merciful. Verse 8, the pure in heart. Verse 9, the peacemakers. Verse 10, we have no, we cannot relate to this. 
blessed are those who are persecuted. You say, wait a minute, preacher, that sounds like the biggest bunch of losers I've ever seen. That's exactly my point. The world has a misconception of what brings happiness. We think money brings happiness. We believe that. We believe that money brings happiness. We believe that a new car brings happiness. We believe that a new home brings happiness. We believe winning the lottery would bring us happiness. We believe that. Here's a guy, he's 41 years of age, a quiet, unassuming computer technician. He was earning $45,000 a year, and he won the two million golden cracker Georgia State Lottery. After telling the local media that he would not change his lifestyle one micron, he proceeded to buy a new Cape Cod-style house, a fire red Corvette, 10-screen multimedia computer entertainment system. Within two weeks, he received 23 pre-approved credit card applications, a total credit line of 210000 at 21% interest, all of which he signed in return. The crowning glory of his money mania was a well-shaped in-ground swimming pool, which he purchased by going to the limit on nine of his new credit cards. What he didn't realize was that his $2 million bonanza was divided up into 20 equal payments, which amounted to $70,000 a year after taxes. Even with $70,000 per year, he already was experiencing a cash flow problem from his excessive use of credit cards. Later that summer, Bud ignored the warnings of his cardiologist. He had developed a stress-induced heart condition from the constant drone of creditors calling around the clock, and he began looking for work, uh, but with no success. Finally, after three years of therapy, antidepressant drugs, and the decreasing value of his lottery checks, Bud made his final move. After dragging himself to the top of his Cape Cod house, he vaulted into his empty well-shaped pool and died. Most people dream about hitting the lottery, thinking that all their worries would be over. The good life, fun in the sun, a Caribbean cruise, a house overlooking the ocean, endless vacations, huge bank account. We've all thought about these things. If Bud could speak from the grave about what true happiness is, I think he would have a few things to tell us. Jesus is going to tell you and give you eight things that bring true happiness. I hope you're paying attention. Number one is being poor in spirit. That's my text, the poor in spirit. I want you to look at that verse, Matthew 5, 3 again. Blessed are those who are poor. Everyone say poor. Now, he hadn't got one word out of his mouth, poor, when that... If I said to you, true happiness, uh, being blessed is being poor, I I hadn't even got the word out of my mouth. I lost half the audience because that's not what we equate happiness with. Do you see that? But Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, let me state this. Whatever poor in spirit is, whatever that is, it must be important. Because Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what he's saying is this, if you want the kingdom of heaven, if you want all that heaven has, you've got to be poor in spirit. So whatever poor in spirit means, it must be important. I want to say that like this, if you're not poor in spirit, the kingdom of heaven does not belong to you according to Jesus. Now, the word poor, he's not talking about financially poor. The best word that we have, I want you to write this down, is the word humility. To be poor in spirit means to be humble, to be filled with humility. Augustine said 16 centuries ago, which is in the 400s, 
He said there are three things required for salvation. Humility, humility, and humility. I want you for the next few moments to be thinking about humility. Because humility, according to Jesus, is is one of the keys to the kingdom. Now, in the Greek, the word poor in this text is the word tokos, which means people who have nothing. These are the spiritually destitute who acknowledge, God acknowledge, that you are bankrupt without the ongoing grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word poor here is not just to be poor financially. It does not mean that you are lacking spiritually. You've got to understand this. It means that you are destitute, that you are literally reduced to begging, that you have no dignity left of any kind. This poor means that you have absolutely nothing, that you are destitute. You, the only thing that you have is enough energy to sit up on a curb with a tin cup and beg, and that's all you can do. That's what this word means. And so it leads me to give you four things that have to do with being poor in spirit. Number one, write this down. It means that you realize that there's absolutely nothing that you could ever do to merit God's amazing grace. There's absolutely nothing you can do to be saved. It's like trying to jump into heaven. Some of you might jump three feet, four feet, five, but you can't jump that far. Now, you've got to remember the mindset of all these people for thousands of years, how they've been saved by obeying the law, all the rules and regulations of the Old Testament. And Jesus comes along and tells them right here, the very first, there's absolutely nothing you can do to inherit the kingdom of God. You've got to be poor in spirit. So I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 18, because in Luke chapter 18, it's the best story in the Bible that tells you or explains to us what it means to be poor in spirit. Luke chapter 18. It's the story of a Pharisee. A Pharisee is a religious person. The other person is a tax collector, which in Bible days was a thief. Because a tax collector in Jesus' day could charge you whatever he wanted to charge you. He gave a little bit to Rome, and he got to keep the rest. So he was a thief. He was a robber. And Jesus tells a story about a religious man and a tax collector. And if I asked you which of those are you most like, you would all say, well, I'm a religious person. Are you religious? Yes, I'm a religious person. And so in verse 9, I want you to see just the first couple of words of verse 9. Jesus says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness. Stop right there. Self-righteousness is the exact opposite of humility. Self-righteousness is the opposite of humility. Because you are either trusting in yourself that somehow you're going to do enough good things to be saved or you are trusting in Christ. Most people think, most people believe that their own righteousness, that their own good deeds will get them into heaven. And if you're here today... And you think, if I do enough good things, I'm going to get into heaven. That's pride. I'm going to do enough good things to get to heaven. That's pride. Pride is just the opposite of humility. Look what Jesus says. Let's read through the text. 
Luke chapter 18, verse 9, to some who were confident of their own righteousness, and they looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, that's the religious man. The other was a tax collector. Oh, he was a thief. Verse 11, the Pharisee, the religious man, he stood up and he prayed about himself. He said, God, now his first word is God, but the rest of the prayer is all about himself. He said, God, I want to thank you that I'm not like that other guy, the robbers, the evildoers, the adulterers, or even, he points over that tax collector, even that tax collector who's over, what in the world is that guy doing in here? I fast twice a week. You know, I would guess there's not a single person in this room right now that twice fast a week. Not one. Not one. I'm not talking about when you miss breakfast because you're late to work. Yeah, that, that, that's not a fast. I, I bet there's not one person who, who religiously, faithfully fasts twice a week. This guy goes, hey, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. Pretty good. I, well, I would take a church member like that. I'd say, hey, hey, you come on down here and sit down in the front row here. We've got to sit right here. Come on up here. So far. Verse 13, but the tax collector, now watch this, he stood at a distance. He couldn't even, he couldn't even get close. He stood at a distance, and the Bible says that he could not even look, he couldn't even look up to heaven. But instead he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said in verse 14, I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be what? The kingdom of God belongs to those who are humble, who are poor in spirit. It's a blessing for us to bring this program to you every day. We exist only by our faithful partners who support us through their prayers and financial gifts. If Pastor Dudley's message has been a blessing to you, we would like to encourage you to consider joining in partnership with us so we can continue to be here every day to bless others with this important ministry. Your gifts, whether large or small, are greatly appreciated and go directly to help keep us on the air. You can find out more about supporting us by calling our toll-free number, 888-818-4777. That number again is 888-818-4777. We have operators standing by and ready to take your call. You can also support us by going to our website, liftupjesus.com forward slash reach. That address again is liftupjesus.com forward slash and then the word reach. We live in the most distracted culture in the history of the world. We see about 10,000 messages every day. We even touch our phones about 2,000 times a day. We're literally being overwhelmed with information. That's why there's no better time than right now for Dudley Rutherford's remarkable new book, One Thing, Rediscover a Simpler Faith in Our Complicated World. In this timely book, Pastor Dudley invites you to open your Bible and look closely at seven key passages of Scripture where you'll find the beautifully uncomplicated phrase, one thing. 
These scriptures will quiet all the noise that you're hearing and call you back to a simpler faith. Dudley Rutherford has discovered the secret of how to focus our lives on the one thing that matters. What if you could find that simplicity? It's waiting out there, and this is your roadmap to freedom. Contact Lift Up Jesus today and get your copy of One Thing, the book that could finally change everything. I'm Kyle Welch. We invite you to join us every weekday at this time when we again lift up Jesus with Pastor Dudley. Pastor Dudley.